Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Among the oldest questions of humans are the following. Who are we? What are we doing here? Where did we come from? How did we get here? And where are we going? Two of these questions are now tractable for scientific inquiry. And they are, where did we come from and how did we get here? And this subsumes the subject of anthropogeny, explaining the origin of humans. Our mission statement is as follows. We use all rational and ethical approaches to seek all verifiable facts from all relevant disciplines to explore and explain the origins of the human phenomenon. I'd like to go back more than 50 years when C.P. Snow pointed out that there were two domains of academia, humanities and sciences, and they seemed to have a difficult time getting together. Well, it's not very different from the ongoing nature-nature debates, and for that matter, it really comes down to culture and genes. Now, if you want to pursue anthropogeny, you need to avoid such false dichotomies. So we need to look at the humanities and the sciences, study nurture with nature, and the theme of today is culture gene coevolution. So evolutionary biologists tend to think of the interaction between genes and traits as a one-way street. Genes influence traits, and they do so generation to generation, unless a mutation happens in a gene, in which case its function might be changed, and as a consequence, the trait that it influences might appear different. And from that time forward, there's a faithful inheritance of that interaction. And this kind of a model of direct interactions works well for many kinds of traits, eye color, for instance. But when we're talking about culture, the situation can be a lot more complex. Um, so instead of having direct interactions, we can have situations where uh, a change in a, in a cultural trait may precede any or happen in the absence of any genetic change. Um, and it may, in fact, set up a situation where a particular kind of genetic change is favored. So culture can lead the, the, the interaction. But the converse can happen as well. A change genetically could potentiate a cultural change by establishing a situation where a particular kind of, of, for instance, cognitive capability becomes possible. But that may not actually happen until uh, um, much later. And so we can have a decoupling in time of genetic and cultural interactions. So these sorts of interactions are... Um, can be more subtle, uh, they can be more complex, and they can be separated in, in, in time. Now, that, all that makes it difficult to study gene-culture interactions, but one kind of interaction that, that um, I'm quite interested in studying, in some cases we can begin to suss out what those interactions are because it's a fairly dramatic cultural change. And I'm talking about the change that happened when our ancestors moved from this environment, uh, which was in some ways very nice, it's warm, there's a lot of water, there's quite a lot of food, uh, into this environment. 
And this happened several million years ago when East Africa began to dry up and the habitats that our ancestors were living in began to shrink, forcing them out into a very, very different kind of environment where their food options were really quite different. And out of this shift, we see a large change in diet that I want to talk about today. Chimpanzees, which we'll consider for the next couple minutes as a kind of proxy for our, our ancestors, our common ancestors, are largely fruit-eating animals. They do eat some insects, so they're quite famously sometimes eat meat, but it's important to, to recognize that these contributions are relatively small compared to fruit and to some extent leaves and tubers. Um, in contrast, our, our Australopithecine ancestors out on the savanna were scavenging meat. They probably became better and better at hunting meat, and to some extent they were eating starchy tubers as well. But this is a radical shift in diet, and it happened relatively quickly. Uh, it was probably initially driven entirely culturally. And the question I want to ask now is, what impact did that have on our, uh, our genetic makeup. If you think about it, this kind of change, it's, it's pretty easy to say, don't eat fruit, eat meat. Um, but if you think about all the different things that had to happen for this to be successful, it's quite a wide range of traits. So, of course, foraging methods have to change. There are a number of components that might go with that, we might imagine. The food itself is different. We have to handle it differently in terms of extracting nutrients, storing nutrients, mobilizing nutrients, detoxifying secondary compounds. We have to chew it differently. Um, and food preferences change. The things that we avoid, the things that we're attracted to, uh, we might also expect changes there. So, so how pervasive, indeed, is the impact of this cultural change on, on the human genome? In other words, how much has our genetic material been affected by this one cultural shift? It's a big one, but it's, it's quite likely to be pervasive. So one way we can begin to think about this is to look at the way in which our genes are used and the way in which they're expressed in different tissues in the body. And so I'm, we're embarking on a project in my lab to look at what we might call tissues of interest uh, for comparisons of gene expression um, the utilization of the genome, which is different between different tissues. For instance, you don't express the same genes in your muscle cells as you do in your brain, um, and for good reason, those tissues have different demands, and so different sets of genes are utilized. So what we want to think about now is how that's changed as a result of this, of this cultural shift to a different kind of diet. And some of the tissues we've been looking at um, are brain, muscle, liver, adipose tissue, fat, that's what we normally call it, uh, and kidneys, because these have particular uh, kinds of interest um, in terms of thinking about dietary shifts. So this is a plot. I'm just going to walk you through this because it probably looks a little bit unfamiliar, where we're looking at pretty much every gene in the human genome and asking, does your brain make more of it? or does the chimpanzee brain make more of it? And the way this plot works is that genes that are expressed at very low levels are at this end of the plot, and genes that are expressed at very high levels are at this end of the plot. If the, if the, and every dot is a different gene. If that gene is above the center line, that means it's higher, the expression's higher in humans, and if it's below the center line, it means it's higher in chimpanzees. And if the dots are colored, that means it's a statistically significant difference. And, and the thing to notice here is that a lot of genes are differentially expressed between humans and chimpanzees. Not surprising, we think of our cognitive capabilities as pretty much our carrying, you know, like our, 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 our prideful thing about what makes us unique as humans. Um, but maybe what's a little humbling is that um, 
you know, genes that are higher expressed in humans and chimpanzees, it's about symmetrical. It's about 50-50. And there's no obvious way for us to tell, just looking at a plot like this, which of these genes might be the result of that dietary shift and which of them might be associated with other kinds of human cognitive capabilities or uniquely chimpanzee cognitive capabilities. I mean, who knows, right? But if we look at a different tissue, like fat, we see a different kind of plot. And again, we're looking at every gene in the genome now and asking the degree of differential regulation. And what you see here is a greater degree of asymmetry. There are a lot more genes that are expressed at a high level in humans uh, that differentially at a high level in humans relative to chimpanzees. And so this asymmetry is implying that there's something physiologically different about fat in humans. More has changed during human origins than has changed uh, during the comparable time in chimpanzee evolution. And we can look at, these aren't just anonymous dots, we can actually figure out what they are, and we can ask what kinds of genes have shown the biggest changes. And not surprisingly, a lot of those genes are involved with either the uptake, the transport, or the metabolism of fat. In fact, almost all of those dots are genes that are expressed at a higher level in human beings, and they're pretty specifically involved in dealing with different kinds of fat. So that looks like an example of culture having a big impact on, on human gene utilization. Another way we can think about this impact on the human genome is to ask, where are the significant mutations happening during human origins? And if we look at most kinds of genes, those mutations, those, those, those selected adaptive mutations are sprinkled. There are a lot of them, but they're sprinkled quite widely throughout the genome. If we look at the immune system, there are many such mutations. Not surprisingly, we're always faced with new kinds of challenges um, in terms of, of adapting to pathogens. But what's really striking is if you look at genes that have something to do with diet, and not surprisingly, genes that have something to do with neural development, there are a lot more of those kinds of adaptive mutations during human origins than there are during chimpanzee origins. And so this kind of asymmetry is telling us something about what's happened differentially during the same period of time in, um, in human evolution versus chimpanzee evolution. This maybe is not surprising. We know our brains look and function differently. This is something that we didn't really know so much about until recently, but it suggests that there's been a lot of evolutionary action a lot of adaptation going on in the kinds of genes that are associated primarily with um, our diet. So we can go back to this diagram I showed you earlier, and we can now start to put some examples in for these different categories of, of um, both behavioral, anatomical, uh, and metabolic changes that, that are plausibly interpreted as a response to a cultural shift from eating primarily fruit to eating a, a very meat-rich diet. Not exclusively meat, but a very meat-rich diet. And in each of these cases, I'm, I'm, I've highlighted a couple of genes, one or a few genes, that have been implicated not simply in, in terms of guilt by association, that, oh, yes, expressions changed, or, oh, yes, there's an adaptive mutation, but where people have been able to follow up and do additional studies and um, where people begin to put together the evidence that, that really begins to look like a case where, yes, this gene has changed in function in some comprehensible way that we can link to a particular kind of trait. And so what I want to do now is, is tell you about one of those um, 
cases where we've been able to go down in depth and, and look a little bit more carefully at what's actually happening. And the particular example I want to talk to you about is, is a set of genes that we think are associated with the expansion of human brain size and a response to the dietary shift both together. So a kind of a conjunction between these two important sets of traits. A couple of years ago, actually it's been quite a while now, um, a paper was published called The Expensive Tissue Hypothesis um, by, by Peter Wheeler and Leslie Aiello, and they pointed out that, that the brain is a very metabolically demanding tissue. It burns a lot of calories, and it does it all the time. And our brains are about two and a half times the volume of chimpanzee brains. They're also higher densities of neurons, and we, consequently we burn a lot more energy with our brains than chimpanzees do. So it's great to have a big brain, but it comes at a cost. And given that our basal metabolic rates are roughly a function of our body size, if you're going to grow proportionally a larger brain, you're going to have to take that energy from somewhere else. In other words, energy is a zero-sum game. If you're going to make a much bigger brain, something's got to give. And they propose some possible trade-off tissues gut, muscle, and fat being the ones that they mentioned, just to give you a sense of how big a difference this is. I mean, look at this. 11, over 11 watts per kilogram versus just a little over one in the rest of your body. So your brain costs you a lot. So how can you do this? And a, a lot of, a lot of um, effort has gone into finding this trade-off in, in terms of gross organ size. Shorter guts, are we less muscled? Do we have different amounts of fat and so forth? But it occurred to us that one of the places where this trade-off might actually be accomplished is at the level of gene function, or more specifically, protein function here. And we focused our attention on a group of, of genes that are involved in producing transport molecules that move sugar across cell membranes. The reason we became interested in these genes is they show differences in expression, and they show unusual accumulations of, of, of adaptive mutations. And it just began to click in our heads that this might be an interesting place to look. And so we began looking at these sugar transport molecules. And what we found was something very interesting. There are different versions of these sugar transporters in different organs in your body. And there's one that works primarily in your brain, and there's another one that works primarily in your skeletal muscles. And what we did was look at the level of expression of those genes in the different tissues in humans and chimpanzees, and also in rhesus macaques to be sort of an outgroup comparison. And what we found was that in human brain, the brain transporters expressed at about two and a half, three times the level as it is in chimpanzees. In other words, you're making a lot more sugar transporter in your brain than a chimpanzee is on the cell surface of your, of your neurons. And conversely, in skeletal muscle, chimpanzees make more sugar transporter and you make less. And so this fits the prediction of the expensive tissue hypothesis in the sense that there's an allocation of a fixed amount of resource, and you're putting more of it into the brain than you are into skeletal muscle, and chimpanzee is proportionally putting more into its skeletal muscle and less into its brain. So that fit the predictions um, pretty well. So it, it, just to kind of illustrate this graphically or sort of visually, so in case because I'm... Looking at graphs is often a little bit hard to do. Imagine you have, here's the bloodstream servicing two different tissues, and if you had the same amount of transport molecules in each tissue, it's simply a result of mass action. About the same amount of glucose is going to cross the cell membrane in both of those tissues. 
But if you now double the number of transporters here and have the number of transporters there, which is about the difference we see, it's actually even a bigger difference than that, but if you just make that difference, what you're going to end up with is, is a differential transport of glucose into the brain relative to skeletal muscle. Now, you might wonder whether that's really enough to make a difference in terms of brain function. And here we can turn to human genetics and, and look for some answers, and the answer, I would argue, is that, is that yes, this does make a difference. Oh, I should just say before I get to that, we do also see an accumulation of adaptive mutations in the regulatory regions of these genes, these regulatory regions being the ones that are responsible for, for, for um, changing expression levels uh, in, the different, in the different tissues. Now, why do we think this is functionally significant? Human genetics is um, a vast resource as far as I'm concerned for evolutionary biologists. We don't always take advantage of it very well, but there's a lot of really, really useful information there. And so we turn to the literature on human genetics to ask what happens when these genes don't function properly. Um, and the, 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 the short answer is it's not very good. If you have one good copy of this, of this brain-specific sugar transporter and one partially defective copy, there are some pretty severe cognitive uh, impacts. And there are hundreds of individuals that have now been diagnosed where this is the reason why they have cognitive deficits. If you have one good copy and one absolutely non-functional copy of this gene, you're making about half the amount of sugar transporter. In other words, you're making about the same amount a chimpanzee would make. And it's not enough. What happens is that during, during, um, during gestation, the brain just simply can't grow, and you end up with a reduced-sized brain, and that's directly a result of the fact that you don't make enough sugar transport. Your brain literally starves. Now, two bad copies. Uh, there are no cases known medically, um, and it's probably because these individuals just, just uh, they, they die in utero. So here's a picture of what we think might have actually been happening. Um, for much of the time since humans and chimpanzees separated uh, evolutionarily, brain size was actually not changing very much. But about two, two and a half million years ago, we begin to see larger and larger encephalization um, on the lineage leading to humans, whereas it has not changed. There are, there, are, there, are, there are basically no chimpanzee fossils in here. But the range of chimpanzee brain sizes and modern human brain size is very different. This, this set of changes happened not in a few large steps, but in many, many small steps. The fossil record makes that unambiguously clear. So what we think is actually going on here was as the change in diet produced richer and richer food sources for us, increased fats and meat, there were responsive changes in the genome that allowed the allocation of this energy into a hungrier and hungrier brain, which allowed us to, in turn, develop additional cognitive capabilities that allowed us to refine our changes in diet. And so rather than this being a unidirectional set of influences, it was actually a reciprocal set of influences. I want to end by assuring you that I did very little of this work myself. I'm very fortunate to have a group of talented graduate students and postdocs who work with me, and most of the work I talked about was done by Courtney, Olivier, and Lisa in my lab. Uh, these are some of my collaborators and our, our funding sources. I thank you for your patience.
what I actually want to focus on, let's see if I can, is um, our interest in studying diversity in Africa. And we're particularly interested in uh, studying the genetic and the environmental factors that play a role in both normal variable traits in Africa as well as disease susceptibility. So just looking at these photos of some of the people who have been participants in our studies from different regions in Africa, you can see a lot of diversity. There's a lot of phenotypic variation, there's a lot of cultural diversity, there's a lot of linguistic diversity, and a lot of genetic variation. In fact, we see the highest levels of variation, genetic variation, both within and between populations in Africa compared to other regions of the world. And the reason for that simply reflects our evolutionary history. And as you heard in some of the earlier talks, it's thought that um, anatomically modern humans arose in Africa within the past 200,000 years, and that one or a few small numbers of uh, small populations migrated out of Africa in the last 50 to 100,000 years, giving rise to all other populations around the globe. Now, you also heard that when they left, they ran into Neanderthals and other archaic um, species, and there may have been some small amount of gene flow or admixture. And very likely that may have occurred in Africa as well. So this is from a study we published a few years ago looking at genome-wide variation and trying to infer the number of genetically defined ancestral population clusters in Africa. And those are represented by the different colors. Okay, so if you see all these different colors are representing a lot of genetic variation within the continent of Africa. And in particular, we can trace, since I'm gonna to talk today about the origins of lactose tolerance, I'm gonna to talk a little bit about the origin of the pastoralist groups. So for example, the Nilotic-speaking groups are thought to have originated in southern Sudan, and we can trace migrations into East Africa, into Kenya and Tanzania. And then we have the um, Cushitic-speaking groups from Ethiopia who migrated into Kenya and Tanzania. The uh, Nilotic migration was about 3,000 years ago, and the Cushitic one about 5,000 years ago. So the other thing we're particularly interested in is trying to identify um, targets of natural selection in the human genome. And we're interested in that because these are likely to contain genetic variants that are functionally important for adaptation to diverse environments and during human evolution. And they may also play a role in disease susceptibility. So for example, genetic variants that may have been adaptive 10,000 or 20,000 years ago may not be so adaptive in today's uh, modern environment. And so looking here at just a few of the populations we've studied, we see um, people who have very diverse diets, hunter-gatherers, agriculturalists, pastoralists. They live in different climates, um, desert and tropical, high altitude, low altitude, and so on, and they've likely experienced local adaptation. So what I want to focus on today is a particular adaptation, which is that for um, uh, consumption of milk as adults and I'm gonna be focusing mainly on Africa. So our ability to digest milk as adults is due to the expression of the enzyme lactase fluorazine hydrolase, or lactase for short. It's expressed specifically from these brush border cells in the small intestine, and in individuals who are able to consume milk, they maintain expression of that enzyme. It, break the, it breaks down the complex sugar lactose into glucose and galactose, which is then taken up through the bloodstream. 
Now, in most mammals and in most humans, um, this enzyme is shut off very shortly after weaning. So sometime around four years old to about six years old. So in individuals in which it is shut down, they're not able to digest that compound complex sugar lactose. It goes down into the lower gut. It gets attacked by bacteria. You have severe intestinal distress, including diarrhea, which, as you can imagine, would be selected against in an African environment. Now, I think you also heard in one of the talks, anthropologists have known about this for many, many years. This is not new. They have long noted that there's a very strong correlation between the prevalence of lactose tolerance, or you could think of it as the lactase persistence trait, because the enzyme persists as an adult, and the practice of dairying or cattle domestication. So we see the highest prevalence in the north of Europe. So in Finland, it's something like, I think, 99% of the population can digest milk. It's less as you go into southern Europe, less in the Middle East, very low in East Asia, very low in Native Americans, and very low in most Africans except those who practice cattle domestication and dairying, so mainly in East Africa. So people for many, many years, tens of years, have been trying to find the mutations that play a role in this variable trait. And in a beautiful study done in 2002, Lena Peltonen's group used some very clever genetic methods to identify two variants that were associated with the trait in the Finnish population. It turns out this is the critical one. And it happens to be about 14,000 nucleotides away upstream from the lactase gene, which is on chromosome 2. It's actually in a non-coding region of a neighboring gene. And they have actually shown that individuals who have the T are able to maintain the enzyme activity. So this is a case where you have a functional variant that's not in a gene. It could be tens of thousands of base pairs away. It could even be in a neighboring gene. But when we sequenced this in East Africans who drink milk, they didn't have it. So we wanted to figure out what variants do they have. And to do that, we've been doing field work in Africa for a number of years together with students and postdocs and collaborators, mainly working with remote populations. And from these, we want to obtain DNA. So we uh, usually obtain that from getting blood samples. And we typically have no electricity, so we have to come up with clever ways to process the samples, including hooking up the centrifuge to the car battery. But in cases where we can get access to a generator, we can do a lot better, have a better centrifuge. And basically, we're trying to get these white cell pellets, and that's where your DNA is. And then we can actually process it in the field. All right, so that's how we're getting the DNA. But in order to do the lactose, um, to do this test to determine lactose tolerance, it's something called a lactose tolerance test. And what we're basically doing is giving um, the sugar lactose in a powdered form. It's like an orange Kool-Aid type of mix. Mix it with water. And then we have to, it's a time test. So this is actually the challenging part. It's getting everybody to line up. And everybody drinks this at one time. And we take a baseline glucose um, measurement from the blood. And then we're basically, oh, this, the last group was the Maasai. This is a group from um, southern Ethiopia who are pastoralists. And then we're going to just use a diabetes monitoring kit that many of you are probably familiar with. So we can just get a finger prick of blood and then measure glucose levels in the blood. And we do that every 20 minutes over an hour. 
And then we can look at the maximum rise in glucose, and if it's greater than 1.7 millimolar, then they're categorized as lactose tolerant or having the lactase persistence trait. If it's less than 1.1, then they're intolerant. And then we have some people who are intermediate. And this is what it looked like in about 500 individuals from Sudan, Ethiopia, and Tanzania. And if we just look at the distribution of this trait, um, light blue indicates the, the frequency of the lactase persistence trait, and it's greatest in the Beja population from the Sudan. They are pretty hardcore pastoralists. They drink several liters of actually camel's milk more so than, uh, than cow's milk uh, per day. But we see that the trait is very prevalent throughout East Africa, which has a tradition of cattle domestication and dairying. When we sequenced this region where the European variant had been found, we found three novel variants, the most common of which is at position 1410. It's about 100 nucleotides away from the European one. Individuals who have a C are able to digest milk as adults. Um, that's mainly present in Kenya and Tanzania. We found two others at 13907 and 13915, individuals with a G in either of these, which is the derived variant, the newer variant, are able to digest milk as adults. And we also looked at some genetic markers in the region so we could reconstruct the evolutionary history. Together with Greg Ray um, at Duke University, uh, Greg actually did something that's called a luciferase expression assay to actually look at what is the functional significance of these variants. And he was able to show that there is a significant increase in gene expression from vectors that are driven that have this, uh, the derived variants associated with lactose tolerance as opposed to the ancestral variants. So we were able to demonstrate a functional difference. On the right, I've already shown you this figure on the left, and on the right are the different genetic variants. The different colors represent the different mutations and whether you have two copies or one copy. But the main thing to point out is that in Tanzania, for example, there's a very good correlation generally between the genetic variation we see and the phenotypic variation, the ability to drink milk. But there's a couple of exceptions that you might see. So one is in southern Sudan. Um, they don't have as strong a prevalence of lactase persistence, but a lot of the intermediate level, but they don't have any of these variants. And also a real mystery to me was the Hadza, who are traditional hunter-gatherers in Tanzania. According to this, almost 50% could digest milk. They didn't have any of these variants. So one thing this implies is that there probably are other genetic variants out there that we just haven't found yet. Now, in regards to the Hadza, that's, I really don't know what's going on with that. I thought, well, maybe there's a mistake, because we only looked at about 18. So my students just came back from the field. They measured this in about 100 more people. We're still finding it. Frequency is a little bit lower. We're finding it at about 30%, but it's clear. <laughs> so we don't know why. One thing that I've hypothesized is that lactase fluorosin hydrolase plays a role in breaking down other carbohydrates, Florizin, which is present in the root and bark of certain plants of the rosacea family. So maybe it's playing a role in some other aspect of diet. Or maybe they had cattle in the past and we don't know it. <laughs> but I think that's unlikely. We have more work to do to find out. Now what about what sort of genetic signature of selection did it leave? So let's imagine that this red dot represents um, a new mutation that um, results in increased expression of lactase. And it occurs on a chromosome that has these flanking variants shown in yellow and green. 
If it increases the fitness of the individual who has this mutation so that they have more children and their children have more children and so on, it's going to rapidly increase in frequency in the population, and it's going to drag with it these neighboring variants. So if you have someone who has two copies of this mutation, they're going to have two copies of the yellow and two copies of the green. And we call this extended haplotype homozygosity. And it's what you see when there is a selective sweep. But over time, recombination and mutation is going to shuffle that up. So what do we see? We see a whopping signature of selection at this uh, locus. In red are individuals who have two copies of the C variant that's associated with lactose tolerance in the East Africans. And when we look at markers along the chromosome going up 3 million nucleotides, we can see that they're identical for up to 2 million nucleotides or more. And if we look at chromosomes that have the ancestral allele, they don't extend at all, typically about 1,800 nucleotides. Very similar pattern is observed for the European variant as well. So that means it rapidly rose to high frequency due to selection. If we look at the relatedness or the evolution of the chromosomal regions that have these different mutations, this is just a network showing how they're related. So chromosome sections that have the European mutation are in blue and the common East African one are in red and the other two are shown here. The point is that they arose independently. So you have a case of different mutations in different geographic regions are arising due to a strong common selective force, and we call this convergent evolution. More recently, um, a postdoc in my lab, Alessia Ranciaro, has sequenced well over 1,000 individuals from many regions of the world for this um, candidate region that has the lactose tolerance mutations. I've kind of switched the color scheme here. I apologize for that. But here is that 1410 variant shown in kind of this teal color. And it's very common in uh, Tanzania and Kenya predominantly. We see the other two variants more often in the Middle East or in Northeast Africa. And here's the European variant right here. Interestingly, that's in some of the Western pastoralist groups like the Fulani and the Mozabite. Now, where did that come from? We have no idea, but I would guess probably through the Iberian Peninsula. It's very interesting to find out where that may have come from. Another interesting thing is that here in South Africa, even amongst the San hunter-gatherers, we see a low frequency of the East African variant, suggesting that pastoralism was introduced into that region from East Africa. If we look at sort of, this is like a heat plot showing you the darker the intensity, the higher the frequency of the variant. So that 1410 variant is most common in East Africa, and I think that's where it arose. The 13915 is most common in the Middle East, and that's where it likely arose. And 13907 in Northeast Africa. Now, these are great markers for also tracing migration events, because we can actually trace the migration from these different regions. We can also, together with members from Jonathan Pritchard's group, we inferred the age of these variants. And the 1410 variant ranged in age from about 3,000 to 7,000 years. The oldest age estimates are in the Cushitic speakers and the Nilotic speakers. We can't say for sure which one it arose in. I would guess Cushitic only because we don't see it in southern Sudan, which is where this population originated from. Wherever it came from, it rapidly spread between the populations. There had to be interbreeding. Together with selection caused it to rise to high frequency in both. Together, and the timing of this happens to correspond with the introduction of cattle domestication. So it's a great example of gene culture coevolution. Indeed, 
For the European variant, we inferred the age of that to be about 9,000 years old. And it's thought that um, cattle domestication originated in North Africa or the Middle East somewhere between about eight to 10,000 years ago. It was introduced across the Sahel into Western Africa somewhere in the past 6,000 years, but it was not introduced south of the Sahara until about 5,500 years ago, corresponding beautifully with our date estimates for the East African variants. And it was not introduced into Southern Africa due to this tetsi uh, uh, belt. It's called a barrier, these tetsi flies that attack cattle and cause illness in humans. It wasn't introduced until the past 2,000 years. Now, this is just some examples of some of the archaeological evidence for pastoralism. There are these beautiful cave paintings. Here's one that's from um, uh, northern Africa dated to 4,000 to 2,000 BC. We have another one from southern Africa. And one of the questions arises then, where did the pastoralism in southern Africa originate? Well, the Bantu-speaking people are thought to have brought it there in the last 2,000 years. They're thought to have originated from the Great Lakes region, but they originally, their homeland was in Western Africa. But they must have either adopted the cultural practice of cattle domestication or admixed with people. And interestingly, my student Jabril Herbo has looked at a Y-chromosome genetic marker, which is inherited through the male lineage. And this is one that was actually studied by Brenna Hen a number of years ago. And it's a great marker for this migration of pastoralists from East Africa. And when he looked at a number of groups, he found it at highest prevalence in southern Cushitic-speaking groups. And we think this may have been a likely source of the origin of the migration of pastoralists into that region. I'm often asked the question, are humans still evolving? I think the answer is yes. And I just want to thank the many, many collaborators, funding agencies, and particularly the uh, people who contributed to this project in Africa. Thank you. I want to talk about the spread of what are called Indo-European languages. Uh, about the time of the American Revolution, a British jurist in India noticed and started writing about uh, the similarity of words um, from, from Ireland, from the Celtic languages, all the way to uh, Pakistan and northern India. Shared words across um, a whole range. And it, it's easy to find lists of these. Um, we say God the Father, we say Deus Pater from Latin. The Romans said Jupiter, it's the same word. In uh, Sanskrit, uh, it's used Pitar, something like that. Again, the same word, the same ideas um, across uh, half of Eurasia. Uh, these languages, and we can trace the ancestry of languages in the same way we can uh, trace uh, uh, trees of descent of genes, um, by most accounts originated in the steppes north of the Caspian and Black Seas, so-called Pontic steppes. About 6,000 years ago, um, there was this massive eruption, expansion, of Indo-European speaking people uh, who within a few thousand years uh, were all the way from Ireland to uh, uh, Mumbai. 
Uh, it's, it's an amazing uh, event. We know of other important expansions of people. Um, most of them that we know about, the, the ba expansion of Bantu-speaking people into southern Africa, uh, other expansions seem to have been done by agriculturalists. You have a new food source, you have a lot of food, population grows, and boom. Uh, the expansion of Europeans into the New World was uh, a company that was done by germ warfare, essentially, not consciously, but uh, by uh, the immunological competence of Europeans to uh, old world diseases that were fatal to the inhabitants here. Uh, but what on earth um, accounts for this? Well, here's a map of the Indo-European world uh, 500 years before the Common Era. Um, the, the green on the, uh, on the west are Celtic speakers. So when Caesar was uh, uh, doing his Gallic Wars, he was uh, fighting Celtic speakers. They were later chased to Ireland uh, by the Germanic tribes pushing behind them. If we go all the way to the east, uh, TOC are Tocharians. Uh, these were inhabitants of the Tarim Basin of China. Um, today, that's part of China. Uh, 2,500 years ago, uh, the people uh, uh, looked like they could have come from Ireland. For example, here are two Tocharian monks. This is from what is now Western China in the ninth century of the Common Era. The fellow on the right uh, looks like he, we could find him in China today. Uh, the fellow on the left, red hair, blue eyes, we, he, he looks like someone who wandered out of an Irish bar. Uh, but this is, uh, this is the furthest eastward push of Indo-Europeans. Uh, today, uh, in that part of the world, we find people called Uyghurs. Uh, here's a bunch of them. Uh, genetically, they are uh, essentially, the, where was their DNA a thousand years ago? Half of it was in uh, Europe and half, no, 3,000 years ago, half of it was in Europe, half of it was in uh, East Asia um, and, well, Indo-European um, shares lots of words and it shares core words. Uh, numbers are the same. Uh, body parts. Uh, Indo-European languages share words for oak, beach, wolves, bears, salmon, snow. But they don't have shared words for grapes, uh, wine, figs. Um, it's a very clear signature in shared language of the origin of these people. Uh, Proto-Indo-European, the reconstructed ancestral language, has lots of words for milk, 
Proto-Semitic, the ancestor language of the civilizations of the Middle East, doesn't have any words for milk. They had, there were horses, sheep, cattle, pigs, goats, copper, but not iron. These are, this is pre-Iron Age. Carts, weaving. The weaving of the Celts in France in Roman times is nearly identical to how it was done in the Tarim Basin by those Tacarians. Uh, these were uh, warriors. These were raiders of the plains um, with patrilineal clans, uh, wolf totems, young male warriors, uh, very familiar from uh, folklore and fiction. They were pretty backward. At the time that they were expanding and uh, uh, occupying half of Eurasia, the Sumerians had uh, the wheel, they had writing, arithmetic, cities, irrigation systems. This was the center of civilization in, in the Middle East, in the uh, Fertile Crescent. North of them, all these uh, PIE cowboys had domesticated the horse, but not much else. All right. Now, for a uh, uh, one-minute history of Europe, um, about 35 to 45,000 years ago, uh, modern humans, people that look like us, uh, occupied Atlantic Europe. And we call these the, the foragers or the hunter-gatherers. Then, shortly after 10,000 years ago, farming spread from the Anatolian Peninsula there this way and spread as a kind of concentric waves of advance across Europe. So we have foragers at 40,000, uh, farmers at 8,000. For years in human genetics, the argument has uh, raged about whether modern Europeans are mostly descended from the farmers or the hunter-gatherers. Uh, the recent genetic data suggests none of the above, neither one. Uh, most European genome seems to be descended from someone else. Um, but about 4,000 years ago, archaeologists speak of old Europe, and this is old Europe, just across the Bosporus from the Anatolian Peninsula. Uh, old Europe was these Europe's first farmers. They lived in dispersed settlements, uh, no palaces. The elite lived the way everyone else did. Um, and let me say something about the significance of dispersed settlements. If you fly over rural Iowa today, you'll see farms with farmhouses, and the farmer and his family lives on his farm. If you, not so much today, but a few hundred years ago, flew over Italy, you'd see fields in farms, but the farmer and his family lived in a walled town uh, on a hill somewhere, or perhaps an easily defensible island. When there are bandits around, you can't live like you do in Iowa. Um, the first farmers in Europe were like farmers in Iowa. They were living in dispersed 
Very nice settlements. These, this is some of their pottery, beautiful stuff, sculpture. This is long before the pyramids. Uh, nice jewelry. But that whole, their whole system was trashed. It was destroyed. Uh, someone came, burned all their farms down. The place was, looked abandoned for a while. And when they rebuilt, they rebuilt, they rebuilt in walled towns on hilltops and on defensible islands. Something had come and trashed this apparently wonderful place. Oh, okay, so there's some gold jewelry of these uh, uh, early European farmers that, uh, as our best guess is, the Indo-Europeans uh, destroyed. So what was going on at this time uh, north of the Fertile Crescent, north in the plains of Central Eurasia? Well, here's one imaginary version of it, Ovid among the Scythians. Uh, somebody milking the horse for lunch. Uh, today, uh, here are some people from the same region milking a horse. Now, if you look at a map, what jumps out at you is that the distribution in space of Indo-European languages is the same as the distribution of that 13910 uh, lac lactose tolerance mutation that Sarah was just speaking about. It's, it's just real clear, it's the same mutation, the same mutation in an Irishman or a Pashtun in Afghanistan, uh, common descent. Um, the map is trying very hard to tell us that they spread together. But, and, and we know from other uh, evidence that, that Sarah summarized that there's a tremendous selective advantage to lactose tolerance. What is it? Uh, your physician will talk with you about lactose tolerance, but his concern and yours is uh, you know, flatulence, because if you can't digest that lactose, something else does, and you get diarrhea, and it's quite uncomfortable. But is that a big selective advantage? Well, I have my doubts, but if we take a look at milk, uh, there are some pretty important energetic uh, phenomena here. A liter of cow's milk has 250 calories from lactose, 300 from fat, and 170 from protein. Now, if you're not lactase persistent or lactose tolerance, they're synonyms, whether or not you get gas, you don't get those 250 calories. So, this mutation um, is like a magic pill that increases your food supply by 40%. Because suddenly milk, uh, you get those calories from lactose, and you have a big advantage over the kid in the next house that doesn't get those calories. These were populations, Malthusian populations, uh, subject to lots of warfare, raiding, uh, drought, famine, uh, hungry children are an ugly thing to see, uh, but if 
Uh, times are bad, and this child has the magic pill, 13910, uh, has 40% more calories than the others. This, I think, must be the basis, the ecological basis of this advantage of lactose tolerance and of this uh, spectacular eruption of people. Well, what most people in the world have to do if they're going to live off milk is turn it into cheese. You ferment it, ferment away the milk sugar, um, and then it doesn't bother you to try to digest it, but you've lost the energy. So if you take a liter of milk, turn it into 100 grams of cheddar cheese, uh, you've lost 45% of the energy, and energy is the critical nutrient in uh, low-tech human societies. Well, cattle came across Anatolia with the first farmers, turned around uh, uh, and started moving uh, east again, but it nev they never got much past the Urals. Um, these Indo-Europeans seem to have come from mostly from the east of the Urals, and by all archaeological evidence and all accounts, they were horse people, not cattle people. Oh. I have to back up. Uh, this is a southern uh, African Bantu-speaking woman, a group called Herrero, um, who lives on milk. Something like 80-90% of the diet is milk. Uh, no lactose tolerance at all. That gourd is full of milk. She's making buttermilk. Um, when the buttermilk, when the lact lactose is gone, there's this horrible tasting stuff in the gourd that's a staple of the diet. No lactose in it. It doesn't poison people. At any rate, back to early Indo-Europeans. A kilo of mare's milk has 190 calories of fat and protein, 250 from lactose. Um, a mare will yield about five kilos a day. Uh, that will feed two lactase persistent children and about eight tenths of one non-mutant child. Tremendous difference. It's as if there's two children here and everybody gets a quart of milk and this child gets a quart of milk and he doesn't have the magic pill and he gets 400 calories or whatever. This child has the mutation. Instead of a quart, the child is getting two and a half quarts of milk. Spectacular increase in ability to extract food from the environment. And what's important about this, the last point I'll emphasize is that th these people had a biological advantage. And as they moved and invaded, the invadees couldn't steal it. If an advantage is just technology, uh, it spreads to the invadees and uh, uh, is not a persistent advantage. George Custer learned this at the Little Bighorn. Um, but a biological advantage uh, can't be uh, uh, stolen. And thank you very much.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.